For the rest of us here who've uh, been around a while, you know we're in Luke chapter 7. So if you'll turn there now, and we'll pick up where we left off, uh, beginning in verse 18. We've seen many miraculous works, many wonderful works that have been occurring through Jesus' ministries, or His ministry, and His disciples have been enjoying a front row seat, Right? They've been right there with them, alongside of them, witnessing all of God's glory and the amazing things of Jesus. And actually, it won't be long now, and Jesus is going to be delegating them some of this authority in chapter 9, and they'll be ready to go out on their own. They're going to get some test runs on this thing. And uh, Jesus is going to call together the twelve, delegate to them some miraculous powers, send them to preach. Everything's just going great, right? Well, it ought to be right, huh? Shouldn't it always be that way? You know, if you're in the will of the Lord, you're serving Jesus, everything ought to be smooth sailing, right? Jesus is displaying power, you know, He's rebuking the Pharisees, raising the dead, and uh, God's getting all the glory, God's getting worshipped, and that's the way it looks when you're a good Christian. Well, maybe not always. Maybe not always. Or maybe perhaps John the Baptist did something wrong. Maybe he wasn't entirely faithful. Maybe he was even a little overzealous in all of his preaching. Maybe God was kind of tightening the reins a little bit on him, chastening him. Maybe God wasn't completely pleased with John. Because the crowds, they're no longer being drawn to John the Baptist because he's seated in seated in Herod's prison, sitting in prison. And only a few faithful disciples of John even visit him anymore. In fact, in the preaching circuit, after nearly a year in jail, John's become a footnote. He's just just a fleeting memory. Think of a year. A year has passed. How many people remember, remember last week? And time has passed. John's a fleeting memory in most people's minds. Everything's about Jesus now. And this report is coming in to Herod's dungeon or his his jail that Jesus is accomplishing all these miracles. Crowds are following Jesus everywhere, constantly growing. No one cares about John. No crowds any longer for John. Uh, There's so much excitement and success, John's name isn't mentioned much anymore among even Jesus' disciples. What happened to John? And in Luke chapter 7, seemingly forgotten, John hears these reports, these triumphs of Christ while he's sitting in jail, possibly even in chains. And that's where I'll begin reading from verse 18. The disciples of John... These aren't Jesus now. These are John's disciples. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Well, what things? The miracles, the the healings, even even raising the dead. These successes of Jesus. So summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask. Are you the expected one? Or are we to look for someone else? At that very time, 
Jesus cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind, and he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the gospel have the, uh, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense in me. I've got to admit, I don't know exactly what was going through John's mind at this time. Not exactly, not his motives, how he was feeling or what he was thinking in this line of questioning. You know, there are a number of, of theories about this, what John was thinking. Some propose he's in major crisis. This Messiah that he introduced now has abandoned him, and he was supposed to be released, you would think, because Jesus was proclaiming the release of the captives. As faithful forerunner to Christ, you would think that, that uh, he wouldn't be sitting in prison. Jesus has proclaimed release to the captives. Others suggest that John doesn't really have an internal crisis at all. That John is a rock, standing firm, solid, unwavering, they propose he, he merely wants to drive his own disciples closer to Christ. And, and, and with that theory, this line of questioning is for the benefit of his own disciples. That as they go and ask Jesus uh, whether he's the one that uh, Jesus will affirm, and that way they might loosen their grip a little bit with John, you see what I mean, and draw themselves closer to Jesus. Uh, of course, John did say, he, goes, he must increase and I must decrease. So that's another line of thought concerning this. You're going to have to decide what you believe fits best. I'm going to suggest both. John is desirous that his own disciples will grow increasingly attached closer to Christ. And yet, he himself doesn't know exactly why he's sitting in prison. He, he doesn't quite understand why this great ministry that he had had ended. John, he was a human being just like us, you know. He had feelings, he had emotions, and after spending months alone, or nearly alone, possibly up to a year at this point now in prison, you know, he, he probably began thinking to himself, you know, maybe I miscalculated. Maybe there's something I misunderstood about this arrival of the kingdom. So he crafts a question. And it's very short, it's to the point, which we can be thankful for. It might have been even a little bit, maybe crabby from prison. Lord, Lord, I've been faithful to you. I've been, I've been faithful to your word. I fulfilled the ministry that you gave me. I, I preach with courage and boldness, proclaiming the truth. I even gladly allowed my ministry to, to diminish so that your, my, yours might increase. I happily stepped aside, aside so I wouldn't distract others from you. And I sit here today cold, mostly alone. You know, the light of my future has been, been turned dim. I don't understand. And, and I need to know. I need to know, why? Have you ever asked that of yourself? You ever need the reassuring of Christ? 
And John crafts this question. Are you the expectant one? Or shall we look for someone else? Have you found yourself in that position? Could, could you be there today in that situation, wondering, you know, thinking that you had all your faith together and everything's going wonderful and, and life is great and people are appreciating you, possibly you're even serving Christ, and then, and then at the loss of a job, maybe an untimely death of a loved one, may, maybe even a diagnosis of your own is starting to bring your health down. Maybe you're asking yourself, is this it? Is this what I've served for? Is this, this what I was to await? Was suffering? Is this what Jesus really wanted? Or is there something wrong with me? This passage, folks, answers that most important question. Very important question for us as Christians. When your life doesn't turn out the way that you pictured it, is it a problem with you? Have you been deserted by God? And it really exposes the foul stench of the prosperity gospel. This passage really does that in a big way. That exposes it for what that is. That's a false gospel that says that, that as long as you are faithful to Christ, everything's going to be smooth sailing. Everything's going to be easy street from there on. Perfect health, wealth, happiness throughout your life. That's a false supposition. It runs headlong into this passage just like a fly running into a brick wall. It, it doesn't have any uh, endurance against this passage this situation of John the Baptist. No one had been more faithful and courageous than John throughout his life. In fact, the next passage that we'll be looking at after Resurrection Sunday, um, in the line of questioning, Jesus is going to emphasize to this whole crowd after this question is answered that no greater prophet ever arose in Israel than John, right? He's going to set the record straight after this question is answered and he sends away these disciples. So, so it wasn't John's lack of faith. It wasn't a problem with John that had landed him in Herod's prison. It was actually the strength of John's faith that had landed him in prison. His strength landed him in prison. It was the same with the apostles and with everyone who proclaims Christ. Those who are of the greatest faith are going to endure the severest testing. Those who are most bold with the gospel are going to endure the greatest resistance to their preaching. And that's a big part of what happened with John, right? Herod didn't like what he was preaching. That landed him in prison. And the the apostle Paul, writing the local church in Corinth, which, which was a shallow church. And they were kind of into the health and wealth thing. They were shallow over there. And he reminded them how he and the other apostles had been ill-treated for the sake of the gospel. He writes them in 1 Corinthians chapter, 11, verse, or chapter 4, verse 11. This is kind of abridged. Paul writes, To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated. We are homeless 
we toil working with our hands, we are reviled, we are persecuted, we endure. We are slandered, he continues, we become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. That's the Apostle Paul. And he's speaking of apostles in general as well. And he admonishes this church. He's saying, therefore, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Was Christ slandered? Was Christ ill-treated? Oh, he was. Paul's saying, I'm imitating him, you imitate me. That's the road that we've been offered. So the Apostle Paul would affirm, and the the historical church really would agree, the last 2,000 years, that those who have been most faithful, like John, like John the Baptist, for them, the difficult circumstances that you find yourself in today, they're not indication of God's dissatisfaction with you. And if you are faithful, the Lord doesn't promise to always prosper you. That's a momentous error in the prosperity gospel that can't be reconciled to Scripture. God doesn't promise to always prosper every one of us. Many people embrace that false type of doctrine. And it even sounds reasonable in a sense, right? We're, we've given our lives to the most, most powerful king there could ever be, the creator of the universe, King Jesus himself. Um, it sounds reasonable until you consider one thing. You bring it to its logical conclusion. If you really look at that doctrine and what is the logical conclusion That would be, if you're not prospering, then there's something wrong with you. And I can't think of a greater insult, a bigger insult to the poor and the crippled and the marginalized and those who are ill and sick. I can't think of a bigger insult to them. Those who who Christ has said He has given faith in James... The poor are rich in faith, according to James. To those people, they're being insulted, saying that you're not rich in faith. You're poor. That's just such a false representation of Scripture. It just, it just can't be defended. But our, but our passage doesn't actually seem to suggest that John the Baptist is struggling with the notion of God's approval, as we so often do. I don't think that's what it's suggesting. In fact, I think John is reasonably confident of what he had preached, of how he had served, of how he had satisfied God through his ministry. What John seems to question is, is Jesus the one? He doesn't seem to question whether or not he preached what God told him to preach or that he served well. He seems to ask, are you the expectant one? Or should we look for another that's a question that needs to be answered and scripture does it scripture answers that question i think it exposes the root of his question that his circumstances they just didn't align with his view of christ they they didn't plumb with what john was expecting of the messiah and we have to be careful of this ourselves Um, john is not a heretic He's not unfaithful. 
he more likely embraces what was culturally a long-held misunderstanding. He had probably anticipated that the Messiah would come and he would immediately assume the throne of David and that he would rule as king. That was the predominant uh, anticipation of the Messiah when he came, that he would assume the throne of his father David and that he would rule over Israel, conquer Israel's enemies. Rome would be cast off. Um, He would reign as king. Their theology is that it would look a lot more like Solomon's reign, some more wealth, a little more gold. That was the throne of David that they they longed to have restored. They they didn't anticipate a grafting in of the Gentiles. They, They weren't looking... For that, they didn't have a theology of what we call the church age today. They, they didn't even think about that. That wasn't something they were waiting for. They, they were looking for the Christ to come and establish His rule over Israel. After 2,000 years, they're still waiting. They're still waiting. Another sermon for another day. Paul tells us in Ephesians 3 verse 9 that the wisdom of God displayed through the inclusion of the Gentiles, that is the church, that wisdom of God, through the establishment of Christ's ecclesia, the church, His people, uh, that was actually hidden from previous generations. Read that before? How the gospel had been hidden? And um, it wasn't a shocker that John the Baptist didn't quite fully understand that there was going to be an era of at least 2,000 years, right, of the Gentiles being grafted in. John, John the Baptist hadn't been taught that in Sunday school, or Saturday school it would have been back then. Israel would have been shocked, or were shocked, didn't want to accept the fact of a dying Christ. They wanted one who would rule who'd set everything right to level the playing field with their neighboring uh, nations. They were looking for a little prosperity. That's the kind of king they were looking for. They didn't like the idea of a dying Messiah. That was not on their radar. They did not like that at all. They didn't recognize the 2,000-year period called the church age when Jesus himself said, I will build my church. They didn't immediately get it. They didn't immediately give, get it. Even after the resurrection, um, you have the apostles coming to Jesus and say, well, well, is it now that you'll establish His kingdom? Right? Is it now? And He said, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know the epics and the times. That's up to God. Um, it, it just didn't register with Israel. It was hidden, Scripture says. In fact, when the admirers of Jesus laid down their palm branches and and they laid out their coats as they're paving the way for Christ to come in uh, on that colt of a donkey into the entrance to Jerusalem, that first Palm Sunday, the Sunday that we're commemorating today, they had expectations of Him. They had expectations as they laid down those coats. They thought that the one who had done all the miracles, all the signs, had raised the dead, had spoken so courageously about God and the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom, right? That's what Jesus has been preaching this whole time. They're like, yeah, yeah, we want that kingdom. 
We want it all and we want it now. They wanted him to forcibly establish his kingdom reign that he had promised in the Old Testament scriptures. They got that partially right. Partially right. Christ did initiate his reign spiritually over the church. But that's not the way that they wanted. That's not exactly what these crowds wanted. They weren't looking for a bloody cross. They weren't wanting a a dead Messiah. They were wanting Christ to assume the throne of David. So in a few short days, and Christ doesn't perform the way that they expected, it didn't pan out. He got into conflict. He ends up arrested, remember? In just a few short days, these crowds are no longer shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. No, many of them, if not most, many in the crowds were so disappointed, especially with the arrest of Jesus and when they saw that things weren't going well, many of them would join another choir of people screaming. You remember what it was? Crucify him. He's a fraud. We were looking for a king. Now look at him stripped and beaten and bloody. We'll take Barabbas. Here's the point, folks. They were not interested in a Savior who was going to suffer and die and then graft in the Gentiles into his people through a church. They had no interest in that. The majority wanted a Savior who was going to prioritize their immediate felt needs, fix their situation, remedy their problems, establish the throne of King David. Remember, King David, he had defeated all the nearby enemies. That's what they wanted. They wanted liberation from Rome. They wanted the glory of Solomon in all the greatness that he displayed. But a church? What would we want a church for? We want our king. Inclusive of the Gentiles? No. No, we aren't looking for that. We're wanting King David to rule. The descendant to rule. Uh, we, We aren't into this whole church idea. I mean, I'm immediately here in in Jerusalem and I've got bills to pay and other things and the Romans are mistreating us and I don't have time to wait for Gentiles to be grafted in, which now has ended up being 2,000 years. Ask any of those people in in Jerusalem whether, hey, you know, if Messiah dies, are you willing to wait 2,000 years? No, I want it now. This is quite possibly... Uh, the best illustration of, of the greatest hoax of the modern church growth movement. It's a huge hoax that, that, that Christ the King has died and, and risen in power to meet every one of your felt needs. That's a hoax, people. That is a hoax. So, so when Americans then are offered that Jesus, that type of Jesus, man, they'll, they'll quickly, they'll get their coats off, they'll, they'll throw it down on the road. yeah. Bring it in. I'm all for that, Jesus. I want a king who's going to reign and set everything right and my life will be perfect and 
And uh, boy, that, as long as everything's rosy, I'll, I'll, I'll maintain my allegiance to him. Every, if everything works, right? Works the way that we want it to. It might even attend church once in a while. Worship. But when the career falls apart, when the health fails, when their finances crumble, just like those people in Jerusalem who had laid down their coats just a few days earlier, they will quickly turn their backs on Christ when the persecution comes. Because that's not what they were ever signed up for. What they experienced in Jerusalem didn't match what they had been promised. They, they, they accepted, through the theology of their day, a, a false Jesus. Many people have a Jesus crafted in their minds. They get their own personal Jesus. The one that's going to meet their every felt need. And when you meet those people that have bought into that, that, that idea that Jesus is just going to make everything perfect in your life, that he just loves you so much that, that nothing's ever going to go wrong again, and, and they end up suffering a great loss, and then you don't see them in church anymore and don't know where they went off to, but you run into them in a supermarket, and, and you yearn for them. It's like, come, come on, we haven't seen you in months. What's, what's going on here, and why don't we see you in church? And Your plan was never was never to build the church. Their plan was never to buy into the dead Christ who rose from the grave and He's building a church of redeemed souls. They, they never bought into that notion. They, they bought into a Jesus that was going to fix their problems. It's the wrong Jesus. And, and they respond, as many of those people in Jerusalem responded, a church... I didn't buy into this for a church. I bought into this because I thought my situation was going to be improved. That my conditions were going to be fixed. What, what, they'll say, what does the church have to do with me? Well, folks, if you're a Christian, the church has everything to do with you. Because it has everything to do with Christ. We studied this the last couple weeks to a certain level in membership orientation. What is the church? Why do we come into the church? Why do we serve in the church? Why do we love the others in the church? Why are we, why are we here for one another rather than ourselves? We know that Christ didn't die for us as an individual. He died collectively for His church. For us together as His redeemed people that we might be one and that he might be glorified in worship he died for his church he's going to build his church and has been for the last nearly two thousand years and after salvation folks you know the whole reason that we're left behind you know that we aren't immediately raptured up and taken as soon as we reach salvation point and god doesn't just suck us out of here why does he leave us behind because of his church we're here to do what he set out to do to build his church to build his people to to share the gospel and and to bring people into the love of god through the truth of christ 
That's why we're here. That's why we're together, worshiping together on Sunday. Christ declared, I will build my church. That's plan A, folks. There's no plan B. There's no plan B. Christ came to build a church. And the gates of hell will not be able to withstand its expanse and its, and its growth. John the Baptist didn't understand the mystery of the church. But he also did not forsake Christ. His misunderstanding in his point of distress did not cause him to turn away from Christ. He simply asked for some clarity. This isn't what I was expecting. So I don't blame John the Baptist for this question at all. If Scripture tells us that the church age, those 2,000 years, was hidden, it was a mystery in the Old Testament, how could we blame John the Baptist for not knowing about it? We couldn't. It was a mystery that wasn't revealed until after the resurrection. It's not John's fault, so I don't blame him. Uh, For the very same reason, Jesus doesn't blame him. It was just a misunderstanding. He doesn't blame John. Uh, Folks, Jesus and, and the Scriptures, they never resist questioning. They never resist questioning. Bring your questions to Jesus in the Scripture. They will be answered. He doesn't belittle people. God doesn't belittle people for having misunderstandings and wanting to have clarity. And that clarity comes through the evidence of Christ and the Holy Word. Questioning with with truth and honesty, that's that's perfectly acceptable for those who actually want an answer and aren't giving their own answer before the question's even been answered. In Luke 7, verse 20, when the men came to him, this is the disciples of John, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expectant one or are we to look for someone else? And at that very time, Jesus cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. Folks, Scripture's got to be given a little bit of sarcasm here. Think about it for a second. They come asking, are you the expectant one? And all these miracles are happening. I mean, this massive crowd, there are many signs, and John's disciples come up and ask, well, should we be looking for someone else? Who? They have that answer right before their eyes, folks. When many followers were defecting Christ, we're not walking with Him anymore. You can read about that in John chapter 6. They were disciples at a distance. And it wasn't due to lack of evidence. It was due to hard teaching. They couldn't accept what Jesus was teaching. They couldn't digest the teaching and Jesus said to the twelve you do not want to go away also do you and what does Simon Peter answer for all of them Lord to whom would we go you have the words of eternal life there's nowhere else to go where would you go and with all the signs and the wonders and the teaching with wisdom the, the authority If Jesus wasn't the one, if he were not the one, to whom would you go? There's nowhere else to go. 
Folks, for us, there's nowhere else to go. Nobody else has ever taught like Him. No one has ever displayed the miraculous works and the power that He did. No other empty grave hanging around out there. No one ever loved like Jesus and gave Himself willingly to die. No other Savior rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday just so in a few days later He could be beaten and bruised and killed on a cross. No one else has ever done that. If He's not the promised Savior, as Scripture and history have declared Him to be, historical record, the record through the church age and through the Scriptures of the evidences of Christ, if Christ is not God in the flesh, and if God didn't raise Him from the dead, folks, if that didn't happen, there's no God. That's the only conclusion you could come to. And we would have, as Paul said, believed a lie. And we would have no hope. We might as well eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If He isn't the one. For even Scripture affirms that if we have hope in this life only, oh, of all religions of the world, we're to be we're to be most pitied. Most pitied if there's no resurrection. We'll talk about that a lot next weekend. Our faith would have been in vain. But our Christ, He doesn't leave us in this life alone. He rose from the dead. He rose from the grave and He gives new life to us. And He's changed our lives. And you have the miraculous evidence of of people who were sick, people who were addicted, people who were, whose lives were a disaster and they're a new life in Christ, a new creation. The evidence is all around us of people being changed and raised to new life in Christ. It's undeniable. It is His church. The evidence is clear, folks. Where else would you go? There is nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to go. Christ is willing to answer your questions. He doesn't rebuke people for asking questions. If you're willing to receive the answer. And here the disciples of John get the answer. He doesn't belittle John. He doesn't insult John. Actually, in the next passage, he will lift up John as a great prophet. He invites those disciples, look at the evidence. Take a, take a peek around. Sick people being healed, miraculous power happening. Take a look around. Compare that to the Scriptures then of what you were supposed to expect and arrive at your conclusion. Verse 22. Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me, Jesus said. And Jesus answers John's disciples in his typical fashion, kind of with another question. What do you see? What do the Scriptures say? That's all John gets, and and that's all John needs. What do you see? What do the Scriptures say? Look at the evidence. Listen to Scripture. 
you haven't figured it out yet, Jesus here is quoting a whole bunch of Old Testament prophecies concerning himself from Isaiah. Things that were fulfilled in Christ, written 700 years before Jesus was born. He tells John, take a look at that. All these things that foretold about me and then all the things that are happening. Jesus is not compelled to explain why John is suffering in prison. He doesn't answer that. Because John isn't the center of the universe. Jesus isn't obligated to explain that there's going to be a crucifixion in a church age. isn't obligated to tell John all about that. He doesn't promise to relieve John's situation. He doesn't promise to take him out of that prison at all. If Jesus doesn't promise to relieve the condition of John, the greatest prophet ever to arise in Israel, which he which he doesn't. Actually, we know that John gives his head while in prison. He never gets his situation relieved. He's actually martyred. And if Jesus doesn't promise to fix his situation, he's not obligated to fix our situation either. He doesn't owe us an explanation of why he's doing what he's doing in our life. The hurts, the broken relationships, the pain, the suffering that we endure. He's not obligated to answer that. Folks, Jesus is the center of the universe. We're not. He died for our sins. We owe our lives in service to him. That's what John had given. He gave his life in service to Christ. And Christ's plan right now is not to immediately assume the throne of David. That's coming future, the full manifestation of it. He doesn't promise at this time to wipe away every tear, every problem that we have. He doesn't promise that. His plan right now, as of 11.33, Sunday morning today, his plan right now is to build his church. And he expects us to share that plan with him. Um, his suggestion to you in, in this passage would not to be focused on your immediate circumstance no matter how grim no matter how you're grim uh, we are to focus on plan A building his church redeeming the lost souls bringing them in nurturing them in Christ that's what we're left behind for not necessarily going to prosper we don't know what's lying in our immediate future. Doesn't matter. He will reveal that when the time comes. It shouldn't affect our Christology. Our view of Him should not be affected by our circumstances, is what this is teaching us. And thankfully, now we've been given clarity by that question that John asked. And we're blessed through the, the completion of the New Testament. We've had the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The scripture declared who he is. He is the expected one. Folks, that mystery, it's now revealed. It is revealed fully in the New Testament that he's building a church. He will return. We don't know at what time. He doesn't promise to tell us what time. We are to be busy at his work. He's let us, he's let us in on the plan. 
And as many did on that first Palm Sunday, he would suggest we should lay our coats down on the road, folks. That we should pave the way for him as he enters into Jerusalem. And as he enters into our lives, we are to lay down our coats and we are to pave for him. And folks, we're never to go back and pick up those coats. We're never to turn our back on Jesus and say, this didn't turn out the way I thought it was. I'm going to go back and get my coat and dust it off. No. That is never to happen with us. What are we to do? We are to follow him in that donkey. We are to be alongside him as he walks that path to be beaten and spat upon and ridiculed and rejected. And we are to follow right with him And as he is carried out of the walls of Jerusalem to be crucified, we are to be there at his feet. Following him all the way through till the end comes. We are to be at the foot of the cross through through the course of our lives, never denying him. Most of our life situations at some point will sour. We don't turn away. We don't turn away. We cannot deny him. Folks, why? Because there's nobody else. There is nobody else. Odds are, thankfully, we probably won't end like John the Baptist. Probably won't. But if we die, we die. As long as it be in service to Him. He is who he claimed to be. The evidence in the scripture prove that it is so. I love the spirit of Thomas in this, who is also called Didymus. And as Jesus went to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, he was growing, coming close to Palm Sunday, that first Palm Sunday, and they knew what was awaiting them was, awaiting them was conflict. And what did Dom, Thomas say as Jesus was headed to Jerusalem? He goes, let us all go also that we might die with him. We have to let us die with him. But at the very least, let's die to ourselves in order to serve him. We got one shot, folks, at this life, and then we die, and then comes the judgment. There's a lion standing on the other side of that door. The lion of Judah. Wouldn't you rather be a lamb? The judgment will come. And when we die, to wake up and look up and see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You have to decide. Each person here, history provides the evidence. Gerald and I have mentioned many different times. Who else do you know that most of the world has marked the beginning of modern time from his birth? There's nobody else. The evidence is clear. The church is clear. Our new life in Christ is clear. We have been changed. We've been raised to new life in Christ. You can't deny that. The scriptures provide complete clarity on that. It all meshes. We have the evidence. We have the word of God just as John the Baptist did. There's no time for doubting, folks. This is no time for doubtings. There's no one else to look. And Jesus said, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Let's pray.